want to make a, an apolo- apology that we missed a few weeks in our podcast. And, uh, you know, unlike Carrie and Megan, I, I do want to fall, you know, where they could just go a whole year and not record and still get paid out. You know, when I'm like, you know, we missed a few episodes and you listeners get this for free. So, A, don't complain. <laughs> hours of free entertainment. But me, I wanted to give, like, it's not just we were slacking off. We, Phil and I, we had some, you know, some personal issues to deal with. And I feel like, you know, I know Phil, you know, we're not, we, you know, I feel like we need to, we owe it to our listeners to give them a little bit of insight, the kind of the deep-seated personal struggles we've been dealing with. So what mm-hmm. happened was that, so Phil and I, we, you know, I decided to, you know, he wants to show me his roots. So he decided to go back to his hometown of New York. And I said, you got to show me, keep talking about these bodegas, all right? I want to I want to see these bodegas, right? So it's me in New York in November, me and Phil are hanging out. And along with his old childhood buddy, uh, Bishop, uh, he, so me, Phil, and Bishop were just like shooting the shit, going, going to the bodega, you know, getting some of those bacon, egg, and cheese sandwich and those Jamaican patties you tell me about, right? And then Bishop, all of a sudden, pulls out a gun and he shoots the clerk and takes his money. And me and Phil were like, what's going on, Bishop? Why are you doing this? And, you know, Bishop just been spending his whole life on the streets, right? It's like, I'm tired of this. I want my my respect. And I didn't really understand it. This life is very foreign to me. Then Phil explained to me, because he grew up in his words, the hood. His words, not mine, so don't answer me. He's like, okay, you know, in the hood, we have something called juice, right? You got you to worry about getting that juice. And so, you know, his friend Bishop just goes on this rampage, right? Because he's... He's got power bad. He's just going around robbing people, shooting people. And I'm telling the Phil, hey, Phil, you know, I know I just met this guy, but your friend Bishop, I think he's out of control. You know, he's and, and then, you know, so he's, we were dealing with this, right? You know, it's pretty hard to deal with your best friends going around robbing bodegas. And then he, you know, then he tried to frame some of his crimes on Phil, right? And it culminated in the two of them having a showdown. On, uh, and I was just there eating. I know because I was at the bottom eating a bacon, egg, and cheese sandwich. And Phil and Bishop, they're going at it on top of, on, on this rooftop, right? They're going at it. They're finally, go- and then Bishop, you know, falls off the edge. And 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 you know, it's like, no, Phil, you got to help me pull me up. And and Phil, I know it's really hard for you, Phil, but you know, you weren't able to save him. He falls down into the dark alley and dies. And you know, mm-hmm. at this point, a bunch of bunch of people from Phil's neighborhood are gathered up on the rooftop to watch him. And I go up there and it's like, hey, Phil, I got it now. You got the juice now, homie. <laughs> Phil just shoots me this look. He just looks at me and shakes his head. And then it was, uh, you know, we, it, it, you know, we had, it took a while for us to patch things up to but, yes. you know, understand. So, so sorry, Phil, about what happened to your friend Bishop. <laughs> yeah, I mean, me too. You know, it's it's kind of crazy when you think about it. it. Like honestly, the way everything played out, it felt like a movie. <laughs> um, but you know, it, I guess it, it is what it is. But you know, I I don't I don't want the juice. So, but I got it now. So yeah, you know, I just want to say, you know, we we had we had to work through these issues, right? This this. Phil watching his friend get the juice. And then there was this whole other thing that happened last Friday with his friend Debo, you know. <laughs> we're not gonna get into that. So like we're gonna we're gonna miss another week as well, I'm far to say. Uh record episode Breaker Born Chinese, we'll get to that. But you know, Phil had to work some things out with his buddy Debo and 
and you know involved the brick and whatnot but uh <laughs> <laughs> so uh definitely everyone this is might just say was definitely a true event it's definitely not crib from the movie juice at all you know <laughs> ernest 1992 sorry directed by ernest dickinson good movie definitely not crib to that so uh just want to let everyone know that's where we're things at but don't worry we're back on schedule and speaking about the juice and speaking about crimes in the hood in new york we have an episode for you today. Because you know who else had to deal with crime in New York? Comic book creators in the 20s. <laughs> that, I, I was wondering how you were going to do it. And, you know, I, wow. You're not wrong. <laughs> Absolutely. You're, you're, yeah. So for this episode, we're doing another, another special topic focus episode. And me and Phil, we toss a few ideas around to like switch things up, you know, for just talk breaking down comics specifically. Well, we have one in the can, American more Chinese coming up the following after this. But something uh, we've wanted to do, and something I'm especially passionate about, and have done a lot of research in as a personal hobby, is the history of comic books, uh, particularly American comics. So mm-hmm. today we're going to kick off the first in what's going to be hopefully a multi-part series of the history of comic books. We're going to focus this one on the golden age of comics and the comics code. Um, Mm. This one is near and dear to my heart because in, I don't know if I mentioned this in the podcast, maybe I did or not, but in undergrad, my big senior project was I co-taught a class with my buddy Brendan, you know, shout out to you, Brendan, if you're listening, hopefully, Uh, hopefully you're still listening, I don't know, (laughs) I don't know, know. (laughs) but we co-taught a class and it was centered around there's a lot of comics history, and was centered around this book called Stuck Shitty Innocent and Comics Code. Long story, I'll, I'll get to that, but it's like, I'm a big nerd. Big history buff for uh, the history of American comics, and especially the beginning, right? The formation of where did it all begin, and why are American comic books the way they are today? Why are these superhero tropes and genres and stuff that everyone's complaining about because that they're, they have quote-unquote Marvel fatigue and, you know, all their whining like that. Where did it all come from, right? <laughs> that's what we're going to talk about. The golden age of comics, the beginning of the comic book as we know it. And a lot of seminal firsts and big milestones. And then some uh, some weirdness that explains kind of the set of uh, direction the comic book medium in America went towards today. And why it's kind of... Perceived the way it was for a long time, perceived the way it is still. This is be, this be, I've been looking forward to this, did a lot of work on this, dug up some notes from Veratical. It, it will be a lot of me talking, but, you know, Phil, definitely feel free to chime in and ask questions. Oh, yeah, definitely. Like, um, because, like, you already know me, like, my first, like, matter of fact, let's just jump in right now, right? Because, like, comic books started with uh, Superman, right? Like, that that was the first comic of the of the Golden Age. Pre, we're gonna go back in time before that a little bit, all right? That's and that's definitely a huge milestone, uh, Superman. But let's go from the beginning, right? So, well, first of all, let's talk about what I when I say the golden age of comics. Let's first talk about what that means. So, comic book historians, at least when it comes to American comics, they tend to have names for certain eras: the golden age, silver age. It, 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 this will vary depending on who you talk to. Golden Age, Silver Age, Dark Age, 
you know, modern age. You know, like some people like to use Bronze Age. Some people argue that the Dark Age and Modern Age are the same. But it's, it's, you know, it's a useful thing to just like uh, categorize and talk about different eras and cultural differences and important developments in comic books. When we're talking about the Golden Age, I'm primarily referring to the early, of 20th, early 20th century, from about like 19, the mid 1910s, early 1920s, to depending on who you talk to, you know, sources vary. Late 40s, early 50s. Um, I would argue it is a slightly different era, so I'm going to have a different label for it when we get to that part. But the Golden Age of comics is really the comic book as we know it first came into being. So to give a little bit of context, a little bit of preamble onto that. So comics, as we know, were first, and, and you know, there's a lot of different ways people talk. What's the first comic? Oh, it's like cave paintings in France or this tapestry. We're not going to deal with that. Uh, the print comic as we know it. So were originally newspaper strips, right? In that in that first early decade of America, and there are a lot of big important milestones I want to mention. Right, uh, the people who are working, the artists and illustrators who are working in this era of comic strips. Then Neil Neil Brinkley, the queen of comics, he was a uh, you know spent four decades uh, illustrating. Uh, they're caught. They're you know we call them comics. They are a little more closer to like a political cartoon than what we would consider a comic book today. Um, let me give you a link. Uh, you know what? I'm just gonna share screen so folks can know what I'm talking about. So, and I want to, before I continue, I give a shout out to Justin Hall, uh, our comics history teacher. And I'm, a lot of what I'm repeating is, is we learned in his class. So he definitely gave me a lot of groundwork for that. So shout out to him. But yeah, a lot of, uh, a lot of the first comics were comic strips, right? And I think it definitely want to acknowledge some of the early people, pioneers, Nell Brinkley, uh, who's a woman, right? Because this, and this is going to be a recurring thing we talk about, like, Yes, this was an area, this was a time when it was mostly male-dominated, a lot of white people. But during this era of not just comics, but American history, it was often in some ways more progressive than even the decades that follow, right, the 50s and 60s. So I want to shout out this early pioneer, Neil Brinkley. She was an American illustrator comic artist called the Queen of Comics because she spent four decades drawing comics for New York, uh, for newspapers and New York magazines. Uh, great illustration. I highly recommend you Google her. She's a uh, superb illustration. Uh, let me pull up my notes. Another notable comic strips, uh, Crazy Cat by uh, George Harriman. This is the big one where it's uh, it, a newspaper strip about like a cat and mouse and it's kind of like a gag strip. But it was actually the first strip praised as serious art because despite the like comedy focus, it was just kind of very surreal and experimental and highly creative, and it dealt with some commentary, serious issues. Uh, we got Little Nemo in Slumberland by Winsor McKay. Uh, you know, really did a lot of experimental, like the first person to do really cool experimental stuff with the comics forum medium. Uh, for those who don't, for animation nerds, Winsor McKay also worked on Gertie the Dinosaur. I believe, correct me if I'm wrong, I think it was the first animated movie ever. The first animated movie ever. Yeah. Um, and, and I bring this up because I think there is a perception of people of, of, of comics in this era. They think of like Superman and Batman, Flash, and, you know, kind of like this really pulpy, you know, like pulpy genre, like almost childish beat em ups. 
But predating that were a lot of people who were doing really sophisticated storytelling in comics, which was, like, really surprising uh, in my research here. So very early on, you have people working in this field who kind of understood the media they're working it, despite the fact that this was really still a day job at its at this point. Uh, they're just, like, trying to crank out what work. Another important milestone here in my notes, uh, we have something called Amazing Stories, by which 1928 by... The great sci-fi publisher Hugo Gernsback, for which the Hugo Award is named after. It's the first uh, science fiction magazine of a lot of that time. That that was, that word literally did not exist yet. Science fiction, so they call it scientific scientification. A lot of pulpy sci-fi stories, uh, part of a general like cultural movement towards kind of like this optimistic cultural tone or speculative fiction. Uh, published a lot of early comics. The reason why I want to bring up Amazing Stories and why it's important to the comic book as we know it, they had a character called Gladiator uh, that in very much the first... He's kind of like the proto-Superman, right? He was like a, a physically strong... The word didn't exist yet. The concept didn't exist yet, but basically a superhero, right? Physically strong, you know, uh, superhuman person. That, but I guess doing amazing feats, and he really laid the groundwork for what would be the super, the Superman character uh, we will come to do their landmark thing. Were you about to say something? Sorry. No, I was gonna say the the gladiator uh, character, like understanding how like he's you know he has essentially superpowers before the superpowers because of his amazing strength. What what type of feats did he uh, do within his comic strips? Uh, let me check. So when I say, like, he's kind of proto-Superman, very eerily close. So he was, like, physically stronger, right? He was stronger than a normal person. Very much influenced by, uh... Damn it. I can't find any facts on it. I can't... It would be able to, yeah, sorry, I failed as a story. But, you yeah. know. Can't find that. So to give a little more context, right? Uh, before we go back into comics, so let's give a little bit of context to this era, both culturally, socially, but also what kind of art and literature was being made, right? So the late twenties, early thirties, you know, we have the Great Depression, right? Thirty uh, percent of the country is out of work. Uh, a lot of people are like finding hard times working. There's also an era where kind of pop mass mass culture was starting to exist, like come into being for the very first time. Right, because like the radio was still relatively new, you know, serials, right? Movies are are like just are just emerging in the landscape of people watching, you know, the old-fashioned serials, adventure serials. So like the emergence of quote-unquote non-literary, like low art, pulp art, is starting to really take form, right? Popular entertainment is just starting to emerge in that's not like you know classics, right? Not high art, not theater. And so a lot of, uh, among that, chief important are these things called pulp novels and dime novels, right? Like, literally, they're called that because they're cheaper, right? Like, they cost less than, like, a straight-up book. But lots and lots of people were reading them. Uh, and these type of stories, they're more focused on, they're very genre-focused, right? A lot of westerns, a lot of mm -hmm. adventure stories. The very beginnings of science fiction is starting to come in, starting to merge here, some fantasy focus. And this is the type of cultural backdrop that the people who were make who would make the first superhero comics the first comics this is the stuff they were consuming uh and, and you know when i'm talking about like these adventure serials this is like zorro 
right? Uh, Doc Savage, The Shadow. The Shadow, yeah. The Phantom. Yeah, The Phantom, right? People are just going on adventures or solving crime, fighting crime, you know, very, very pulpy, beating people. And of course, this being the 20s and 30s, there's a lot of colonialist undertones and imperialist undertones, right? They're going to like adventures in darkest Africa, right? Or exotic Orient. Mm. Not the most, uh, not not exactly the most flattering depiction of, of non-white people or women, right? Which we'll get into that in a little bit. But this is the stuff that, like, this is the stuff that's happening in the background. The people who are making these stories for, you know, these comic strips and stuff like that, this is the stuff they're kind of making, right? Because they're just kind of very working class people who are just trying to grind out a living, just drawing, right? And, it, you know, there's not a ton of jobs working in, like, the fancy art art world, right? So they're just, like, chucking out, like, you know, like a couple cents per strip working for the newspapers. Uh, to go back to that comics, the big important thing, right, is we have Famous Funnies, 1933. Uh, the collection of comedic comic strips, they bundle a bunch of them together to a 36-page uh, re- binding reprint. And it's the first comic book in the the first comic book as we would know it. And that's a bunch of strips bound together in a book form. And this is where the comic book really starts to come to life, right? And I wanna and I bring this up because again, it's mostly comics are still comic strips at this point, right? They're like three or four panels, maybe six on your page. But when you're able to when you change the medium, right? Instead of just three to six panels on a newspaper. They're like, oh, hey, let's let's publish these as, as, like, a book that you can read from beginning to end. It opens up opportunities, right, for new types of stories. Because now instead of just people are like, all right, we got five minutes to read the strips before we go off to work or do something. Like, oh, we can we can, we can tell longer stories. We can tell self-contained mm-hmm. stories. We can tell stories of continuity. The, the floodgates start to open for new types of storytelling. So that's what we get into. And originally, first, these comic books are just reprints, right? It's easy money for these newspaper publishers. Hey, if you, you know, like we could just, people who like, they love reading the comic strips. They will often read just the strip. Read our newspapers just for the strip. Easy money, let's just collect it, make a collection of them, throw them out. And eventually, um, well, I'm, I'm jumping ahead of myself a little bit. So we just dance around it. We have the very big name. Golden Age Comics, Action Comics number one, published in 38 by National Allied Publications, which would later be renamed DC, because it's also detect- the Detective Comics. Yeah, so you know, for all you people out there, it would be very silly for it to be called Detective Comics, Detective Comics. All right, just think about that. Sit with that one in your, in your front lobe yep. of your brain. Action Comics number one, the first appearance of Superman by Jerry Siegel and Joel Schuster. Um, this is kind of big because the majority of people working in comics at this time, and, and we we would say retroactively working in comics, that didn't really exist yet. It wasn't really in the street. There's just a bunch of people drawing comics for a bunch of newspapers. What did you call? What did you in of in of itself call that an industry? Since like a lot of these people drawing these comics for these uh, newspapers, like they're syndicated. <laughs> Yeah, yes, yes. Or, but, like, or was syndication not a thing? I mean, yet? they are syndicated, yeah. But, like, remember, right? At this point, they're all just a bunch of, which I was getting to, 
a lot of uh, largely Jewish, like mostly men, largely Jewish, very working class backgrounds, very liberal backgrounds for their time period, right? Like I said, they're all young, they're trying to make a living, you know, they're, you know, you know the living, what's a, what's a steady job drawing, working for a bunch of newspapers, right? And they're all just working with a bunch of different comic mm -hmm. strips. And we got Jerry Siegel and Joel Schuster coming up with this idea of the soup of, you know, the Superman, right? From a collection of all these different influences, you know, like we just talk about the pulp heroes, right? Uh, they draw upon being Jewish. They draw upon kind of like uh, biblical Jewish, you know, iconography of like Moses with the whole, you know, right. glass on a stuff. The baby being the baby being sent off to uh, instead of a river to another planet. Yeah, they make uh, you know super bad, right? And well, I'm not going to spend too much time. Everyone knows who he is. There's a bunch of other like historians and YouTube videos and screen rant art, clickbait articles to tell you about the history of him. But this concept <laughs> of the superhero, very, it's like literally a new genre is formed, right? It's a collection of like pre-existing work, science fiction, pulp heroes like the Scarlet Pimpernel liter and literature Zorro. But it's like they're fusing together into like this colorful individual who's stronger than the average person all sorts of powers mm. fighting crime um and it was originally as a comic strip but then very quickly like repurposed into the comic book right soon collecting very quickly and eventually just start putting out like hey these are original stories in action comics the brown paper some other and action comics you know hits like huge hit with kids this is the important thing the primary readership of comics or mostly kids at this point super popular um, and then because of that, just a wave of other, everyone thing on the bandwagon creating superhero comics, or, or comic books, just like original adventure stories of comic books. Again, going off of those from grad school, Jumbo Comics number one, published 1938, first appearance of Sheena, Queen of the Jungle, very important, the mm. first female character, uh, the Carrier Comics title, uh, the, uh, this is by Will Eisner and Jerry Eagle. Will Eisner, that's the name we're going to get back to in a, in a little bit. Oh, yeah. But and the people who, the very few people who know what Sheeta is, they probably know it as the 70s movie starring Farrah Fawcett, which is not very good. But it's just. I only know Sheena from the uh, the Dynamite uh, Yeah, and that's what that's. They, that, like, Dynamite makes a lot of these old Golden Age stuff. They kind of make a modern version, revived version. But yeah, Sheena Queen of Jungle. Mm -hmm. You know, jungle lady, white, white lady going off and having jungle avengers like Tarzan. Uh, obviously, by today's standards, not super progressive because, you know, scantily clad woman in jungle stripe. And a white woman going off living in, in you know, in Africa. <laughs> um, but it was still pretty important that, like, you know, this early on, they had a female-led protagonist, right? Uh, because something in my research that really surprised me in this time period, there were actually a significant female readership in comics, and there was and there oh, really? was a lot of titles aimed for women, right? Yeah. Was this was this also like the was this prior to the advent of the romance comic? Uh, those those start to pop up towards the end of this point, but there was like Little Lulu, uh -huh. there was Sheena. You know, we'll get to Wonder Woman in a second. Uh, like this is this is the thing that like is very important to keep in mind. This era, for as much as like modern woke people love to go back and point how racist and sexist 
people were in this time period. And that is true, obviously. But people tend to forget that this time period, the 30s and 40s, was actually in many ways more progressive. Not only more progressive than people think, more progressive than like the 50s and 60s. Yeah, this mm. is an era where a lot of, uh, and we'll get into World War II, you know, the burgeoning the feminist movement, uh, when you know, the, the Rosie the Riveter, right, the wartime effort, a lot of gains were made for women to, like, in the industry. And it's only afterwards that there was, like, kind of a an era back into conservatism that the more traditional gender roles started coming back. But that was something that really shocked me, that mm. it, there was a significant, you know, female readership and titles aimed for women that a lot of them vanished when it came time in the 50s and 60s especially with the comics we'll get to that uh another big milestone that we definitely cannot forget detective comics number 27 published in 1939 first appearance of batman by bob no finger everyone knows who he is right but you know very notable is that not you know, no superpowers fighting crime this is the most important thing he was very much he, this what made this comic very popular then and now is that he was the crime he was fighting was very much inspired by what these creators were going through because I meant remember this is an era they grew up in the Great Depression right thirty percent of people unemployed uh, you know the mob the mob is at its peak right with prohibition all that that all that stuff the police you know mm. suck. Uh, <laughs> Really sucked. I mean, they sucked now, but they really sucked back then, right? You know what? I need to. I need to argue this fact though. Where, like, talking about the Batman, and of course, being um, the inspiration for a lot of these creators, like the experience they're going through, right? Because uh, Bill Fingerman and Bob Kane are both um, from New York. Um, and funny story: Bob Kane is actually an alumni from my high school in the Bronx. Um, so of course there's that, but Batman and these comics did have a superpower. His superpower was always finding a factory that had a vat of acid in order to push the villains in. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so, and this is a point too, cause we were, we were talking a little bit more about like why superhero genre the way it is. Right. And it's kind of under a lot of criticism today. Right. The whole, it's inherently a power fantasy. Right. It's very inherently fascist. Right. People imposing. Your physical might, right? Like punching people, enforcing law and order, right? And that's an important critique. It's a valid critique. But we have to remember the context of when superheroes first created, right? At a time, these creators, like, I guess it peak crime, right? The Very little faith in the institutions, right? Because, you know, fucking Hoover and the government didn't really do anything to help with the Great Depression, right? Uh, FDR would come along at this point, but he's still up on the up and back. Rapid crime, right? And these creators, right? You know, they're again mostly Jewish, very marginalized backgrounds, right? So, you know, as problematic as that genre is, it came from this original idea of like the world really sucks right now, right? And mm. you know, there's a sort of like wish fulfillment of like we need someone. If only there was a way. We're all powerless. If only there was like this figure, right? These figures who have the power to take the law to their own hands because the law is not protecting people and help regular people. And this is something really important, right? Like, especially with Superman, because most people really know him as, like, the big Boy Scout, right? Like, oh, gee, sucks, you know, Mr. Perry. But 1930s Superman mm. was very radical, actually. 
Like he was, he was like locking up like slumlords. I'm not making this up, right? Mm-hmm. Like, like he was like very much like taking on like modern crime and very involved with like like very, you know, those issues at that time. And that's kind of the tone that Grant Morrison like uh, a few years ago, like let's say 2014, 2015. He was trying, he was going back to that original mm-hmm. tone that I think a lot of that, that I think that. That went over people's heads, but yeah, Superman was really radical. You know, Batman—he's taken up to all these criminals. So again, right? It obviously in modern today, it's very easy. This is something I really hate: armchair cultural analysts and armchair psychologists. Yeah, obviously today, it's very different, right? Because we're we're you know we've seen stuff like the Minutemen and and you know stand mm-hmm. your ground and and post post push post nine eleven post Trump, you know. With the the January sixth, we know more fascism now. But again, remember that the era of when superheroes created it made a lot more sense then. And to go off on a tangent, that's why I love the HBO Watchmen because now it's like kind of recontextualizing superheroes or that that power fantasy need because you know mm-hmm. in that era in the, in, in that world. It's the same thing. The police are fascist, racist. They're not helping black people. So instead, it's like these black superheroes, you know, like Sister Night, like Mr. Sister Midnight, and and Hooded Justice. It's it's that's why. Like I just okay. We gotta do it. We gotta do HBO Watchmen episode at some point. You gotta do HBO Watchmen. Yeah, I figured that's, that's like the brilliance of it was so point. It managed to kind of reconstruct kind of the original intent of what that golden age era of superheroes mm-hmm. was. Was like, yeah, it's a power fantasy, it's a little fascist, but because the institutions were failing them. And that's something like I think why superheroes are starting to have stayed resonant is because again, people are realizing our institutions are failing us, right? So we need some kind of like hope hero fantasy. And I think it's always it's always funny, um, like that you mentioned that too, because it, like you see this argument online all the time where like I don't want politics in my in my comic book. And it's like, in actuality, when you think about it, comics in of themselves are a political statement because they're always bucking against the trying times, right? Back in the twenty back in the twenties and thirties, it was about like, you know, Great Depression, um, trying to like show the amount of crime that is happening, especially in metropolitan areas, right? And then later on we we go into World War Two. Yeah, yeah. Because like I said, most of these people who are working in comics were pretty liberal. They were pretty, I don't know about radical, who knows. But another another important thing about the 20s and 30s, this is the era of like rising sentiment of of communism and socialism, which, you know, some people was a dirty word back then. And some asshole, asshole, it's still a dirty word for some assholes today. But there was definitely a growing sympathy for like the working class and like the everyday and, uh, and, uh, antipathy uh an understanding of like yeah the one percent and capitalism and and you know these other institutions are not helping us and that sympathy is threaded so much in these early stories it's funny you mentioned about the whole comics are not political right because then we'll get into uh well uh, uh, let me let me get a few important milestones before we continue um 1939 marvel comics number one right and this is where we're talking about the marvel first appearance of the human torch and the submariner uh, or rounds a crossover by Bill Everett. Uh, again, Marvel. You know, people. We people know Marvel now. It's the big movie juggernaut. But like, this is where they got their start, man. Just like everyone, just like just a one of a million 
comic funny book people, and they made the story about, like, hey, a guy who caught a fire. It's called the Human Torch. Hey, here's a guy with pointy ears who lives underwater. Let's call him the Submariner, Namor. But, uh, what's the call? That wasn't, but that, they weren't called Marvel back then, weren't they? Weren't they, uh, timely comics? So they were timely comics, but, like, this is, like, the big team-up. Uh, they called, they called it Marvel. It was uh, a special team-up issue. Okay. Right? And this is also a big deal, right, in, in kind of this emerging genre. It's like, because, uh, again, popular culture is not really a thing, right? People are still learning it. People are like, oh, my God, these two characters from these two different strips I read, they're, they're teaming up. And it's just like, it was just like a freaking people's mind, these little kids' minds were blown in 1939, right? <laughs> uh, another important, another important milestone comic, uh, Wiz Comics number two, 1940, first mm. appearance of Captain Marvel, aka mm. Shazam. Ooh. And this is really big because Shazam, my CC Beck, Shazam or Captain Marvel, as you still know, became the number one best-selling comic book. Like, like we're talking like millions literally millions of issues of comic books and the reason why it was so popular and to reflect just kind of this market for kids because again this era there was no really entertainment yet for kids right nobody was thinking about like why should we make anything for kids right just they'll just do whatever the adults would do all right they just go to school join the boy scouts right like kids were just like these voracious readers of comic books and Captain Marvel was so popular because it fulfilled that uh, fantasy of, like, instead of, like, fantasizing about being big and strong adults like Batman and Superman, it's like, oh, hey, a kid literally becomes a superhero by saying Shazam, right? Also, funny enough, it got sued into oblivion by the publisher of Superman because they were like, hey, we have a black-haired, super-strong guy who flies with a cape, and you have a black-haired super strong guy with a cape and flies and you're outselling us. We're going to sue the hell out of you. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it really kind of like screwed him over in a lot of ways. 1940 to night premiere, premiere 1940 running through 1942 newspaper supplement, the spirit by Will Eisner, AKA the grandfather of comic books. Mm. Uh, the, the coin to turn graphic novel. This is a big thing. The spirit, uh, because it was, it was the first quote unquote smart comic. Since Crazy Cat and Little Nemo about a decade before. Like, this was actually, you know, not treated, not more than just, like, kids stuff, adventure serial crime fighting. Like, there was a sophistication with the use of the comic medium, right? Because, you know, Weiser is very famous for, like, drawing the titles as, you know, letters as buildings, right? This is groundbreaking at the time. Uh, 1941, Sensation Comics number one, first appearance of Wonder Woman. Right, first female superhero, uh, published by DC Comics. At this point, they start calling these the South DC Comics. Mm-hmm. Uh, tangent for you listeners out there, is like, stop close to go over the superhero stuff. You know what? Go, just like a million documentaries about that. Go read that stuff. <laughs> uh, created by William Moulton Marston and Harry G. Peter. Uh, this is kind of a, a very landmark title in more ways than one, not just because it's the first appearance of. The first female superhero, but just the way Marston designed Wonder Woman is just so fascinating and very, very progressive uh, for his time. Mm-hmm. Uh, that he uh, so a little bit about him. he's a kind of kind of interesting guy. He was a polyamorous, right? He was married to someone, 
And then they were also in a relationship with, like, uh, I want to say it was, like, a secretary or, like, a student of his. Like, right. a third, like a third woman. Really into, uh, you know, BDSM and bondage. So you'll see a lot of people talking about, like, why are all these wor- early Wonder Woman comics? There's a lot of, like... Tied up, tied up in a tied up in a rope. I was gonna say, what you go see in the the documentary? Uh, I think it was uh, Doctor Morrison and and the Wonder Woman and some some nonsense like that. <laughs> yeah, doc, docudrama. I heard it. Yeah. Or I heard it's like it's good for you who don't know the history and stuff. For people like me who know this history, it's like yeah, you know. Yeah. But you know, I'm in like the I'm a you know the point zero half. I'm in like not just nerd, but like the one percent of nerds who actually cares about this stuff. <laughs> But this so this this, this is the thing, um, right? Because uh, you know, at, even even at this early point, comics were like because they're being sold to so many kids, right? And like a lot of parents and churchgoers were like, "Hey, man, we're the moral outrage is already starting to appear, right?" About like these comics are teaching kids bad lessons. So Wonder Woman was formed out of this editorial advisory board, right? And it's like we need to make uh, like a more kind of comics that's suitable for kids and for women. And Marx came in, all right, I got something, let's come back. Um, and very, he was kind of a feminist for his time, right? He was very pro-suffrage, right? And a lot of the people who worked on Wonder Woman, uh, they came from that suffrage movement background, right? The mm-hmm. 20s. So that's part of where all that, that bondage imagery comes from. Part of it is that, you know, he's really into that stuff. But there's also, like, a lot of the illustrations from the suffrage movement. It's a lot of women breaking chains. Right. Yes. So that's where a lot of this imagery comes from. Uh, Marson, also the inventor of the lie detector, which is why Wonder Woman has the last of the truth. Mm, that, makes, that makes sense. Yep. And then, as Phil was talking about, right, comics are always political from the very beginning. Like I said, like Superman is like fighting landlords, right, who are evicting people and making, you know, slum apartment buildings. 1941, Captain America number one, published by Timely Comics. Which is still, which is Marvel Comics, but this was, you know, this was their old, this was their grandpa name. Yeah, by Joe Simon and Jack Kirby, right? Very, very radical, radical cover because the pit of the front is Captain America punching Hitler in the face. Yeah, and to give some context about why this is so radical, early forties, right? America is still very isolationist, but they are. Everyone is aware of like. Yeah, America is very aware of, like, the growing Nazi Germany and, like, screaming across Europe, right? And a lot of people, a lot of very, a lot of, this was a liberal position at the time, were like, we need to get involved, especially, who else? A lot of Jewish people, because they're the, the ones being persecuted. People. And, yeah. like, like we mentioned, most of these comic creators are these poor Jewish working class background. And they were like, we need to get involved, we need to get involved. So, hey, you know... Maybe we should do something. We should spur it. So they got the war started. A lot of people like to say, a lot of comic historians, the war started earlier in the comics, right? Of Cat America mm. punching Hitler. And they got a lot of hate mail for that, actually. There were a lot of very conservative people, a lot of Nazi sympathizers, a lot of uh, isolationists who were like, what the hell, man? What, like, F, F you guys, right? Uh, this would become a big thing, right? When we, go, when we ramp into World War II, superheroes really take off, right? And and this could be a whole episode of itself. There's a lot of propaganda comics, right? A lot of, a lot of, like, so much of America in this time, time period, but a lot of superheroes are, like, just, like, 
like intentionally joining the war effort. Right. You see Batman and, and Robin like telling people like, "Hey, donate your paper," and also go towards you know, or promoting war bonds. Right? War bonds, right? Because part of what and this is where kind of the problematic power, power fantasy things have come in. Like, if superheroes are about put, you know punching people in the face and and you know enforcing law and order and making might run right, might mm. might makes might right. makes right. What's a better target than you know? Our, our, our wartime enemy being the Nazis and kind of a more unfortunate part, the Japanese uh, again. And to be a little more in this period, you know, obviously very racist, a lot of, uh, a lot of imagery of, of Japanese, Asians, black people, not very, even for its time, it's super racist. Uh, Phil, can you see my screen? Yeah, I can. So I don't know if you knew about this, right. To illustrate, cause I don't, I want to make sure we don't gloss, uh, you know, as much as it's important to know the context, there was some less than proud moments in comics history. Uh, talk about the racism here. So people don't know what when they Captain Marvel Shazam. If you pay close attention when they show reprints of that era, mm-hmm. it's, they don't reprint every single issue of Captain Marvel. It's only a certain amount of them. Why is that? Because he had this racist character named Steve, uh, sidekick named Steamboat, yeah. and uh, they filled. I don't know. You want to describe what you see here? <laughs> Yeah, no, so Steamboat is literally a caricature of the, the Sambo type of character. So, uh, very large, very large pink lips, uh, button nose, speaks in a real, like, uneducated uh, accent. Where you can see it's like, hey, hey, Captain Marvel, uh, you, you use, a, use a hair already? Yeah, and... uh he was a sidekick for a pretty long time in those comics, and it's uh, yeah, this stuff you know obviously does not translate well to a modern audience. Yeah. And you know, there's a fair amount of these in a lot of these really popular comics, right? It's the Spirit, Ebony White. That's you know, look at Google that, right? Ebony uh, White. Oh god. Oh yeah. Oh, you know my Ebony White? Oh my god. No, I've never heard of this either. Yeah, yeah. Look that up. It's it's the same type of character, right? Yeah, sidekick. He was like oh, in, uh, uh, in the spirit. No, no, the, in the spirit. Yeah, he. I think he was a cab driver. I want to say. Uh-huh. Oh uh, yeah, which was so yeah. weird. So, okay. Right, right. There's another one of my favorite like Captain uh, Captain America strips that I, I I made it into my own comic. Making fun of it. It's like uh, he's fighting the Japanese soldiers, and you see a Japanese soldier hit him in the back of the head, and he's drawn the very stereotypical like yellow skin, squinty eyes, like fang teeth. And he mm-hmm. goes like, uh, oh, "Unhand me, you, you, you unhand me, you yellow monkey." And like, yeah, this is a real thing that they were in those comics. And they made, the joke I spoof is that like, you know, he's being canceled by uh, Shang Chi and the and the, the Asian Avengers today. You'd <laughs> be like, "What the hell, Cap?" <laughs> uh, yeah. But um, you know, again, there is in forties. It is important to put these in context, right? Again, as progressive as liberal as these creators were, they were products of their time. Right. right, and I think honestly, like, still, like, Ebony White really like gets me mad because, like, looking at him next to the spirit, it was like reading two different comics. It's it's again, you know, we we have to we have to you know show the good and the bad of this era of comics. Um, yeah. So, right, uh, we're coming up in forty five minutes, so I'm gonna get to World War Two. Uh, superhero comics are at their absolute peak. We're selling millions of issues. After World War II ends, comics takes a huge nosedive. Uh, but superhero comics take a huge nosedive, right? Um, 
to, to give it context, I want to say the stat that I remember. At its peak, like, Captain Marvel, the most popular superhero comic was selling millions of issues, right? You know, like, 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 1940, like, 1945, 1945, literally one year later after the war ends, it drops to, like, I think 49,000, something like that. A huge drop. That's a very big drop. And this, and this is where, because of that, right, McComas was so popular, a lot of different genres are starting to emerge, right? Uh, particularly for women, right, for female readers, that's when we're starting to see a little more diversity of genre. Little Lulu, I mentioned earlier, John Stanley, created in 1945. Young Romance, 1947, by Joe Simon and Jack Kirby. Romance mm -hmm. anthology, you know, uh, it has a very iconic cover that's just like, you know, parody and homage and a lot of comic people today. Uh, same year, I want to say Tales from the Crypt, right? People know, like, the, the Crypt Keeper and all that. It comes from the comic book, right? Horror comics are now becoming a thing. In, in this post-World War II era. Right, which was uh, being published by EC, who was, a, who, uh, who, who was a big juggernaut back in the game, uh, back in the day, because they did horror, they did uh, war and military, and a lot of the popular uh, comic people that, of course, later on we get to learn about, I mean, not learn, but, like, discover, or you fall in love with, like, Wally Wood and... Um, uh, Oh God, uh, Harvey Harvey Kurtzman, um, you know, yeah, yeah, and they're and they're pro and Easy Comics. They're doing a variety of different things. That's not superheroes. War comics, like you mentioned, science fiction comics, right? And they they posted like this landmark, like one of their science fiction Easy Comics. It's like a kind of landmark thing about this astronaut in space, mm -hmm. and the, the reveal is that he's a black guy, which is <laughs> in, like you know late late forties. This is a this is a big thing. Right, it's it's like a pretty radical thing to do. Uh, uh, Mad Magazine, right, which modern people might know today is from Mad TV. <laughs> Mad <laughs> Magazine, nineteen fifty-two. You know, humor comics, right? That comes out of this era. Crime suspense stories, crime comics are a big popular thing coming out of EC. Uh, Western comics, right? My kid called. Uh, okay, so now we get into this other period. So this period, the late forties to early fifties. Uh, I like to I like to make this uh, I like to draw a distinction between this and the previous golden golden age stuff. Mm -hmm. Some people lump it in with the golden age, but I like uh, there's a term I like. It's called the interregulum because comics are in kind of this weird period between like the peak superhero stuff and then when they come back in the silver age, right? Late 40s, early 50s. Not superhero comics are mostly dead. The few really popular ones, Batman, Superman, Wonder Woman, are still going. But a lot of, like, there was a huge boom of, like, really obscure stuff that no one's ever heard of. They're all dead at this point. They all failed. A lot of different genres coming up. A big thing, a big thing that comes up in this period is called the Comics Code was enacted. And I'm going to give you a little bit of context. This is kind of like my specialty of, of comics history. So people who don't know. So they give a little bit of context, right? Uh, as I mentioned, kids are just devouring comic books, right? This was literally the number one major activity for kids. This was the this is the thing they were doing more than anything else. Now, granted, remember the context. This, this is before the internet. This is before video games, right? This is before you know all that stuff. So there's not a lot of options for kids to educate themselves. But comic books are it, and 
because kids are reading so many different comics, the, the moral guardians, parents, church groups are starting to notice that, right? There's also in this kind of early period, as I mentioned before, post-World War II, going from the late 40s into the 50s, America is starting, it's a new era of conservatism, right? Mm. Because we've come out of the se- a second world war and Great Depression. America just kind of wants to go back to like how it was before. So there's a new conservative morality, a new conservative emphasis on traditional values are starting to come back in popular, popular consciousness. And with it is a rise and concern about like juvenile delinquents, right? It's like, oh man, these kids are acting up and there's a rise in crime, perceived or not. I don't know if it's actually true, but there was a perception of, of like, we have to be afraid of these kids and these teenagers, right? This is the era of like, you know, rebel amount of cause, you know? <laughs> so like kids, people are really worried about like, why, what these kids are doing? They're just like not acting, they're acting up, right? They're committing crimes, presumably. Mm-hmm. And there's this guy, New York psychiatrist named Frederick Wardrum. Big name, big name. So Frederick Wernstrom, a little bit of of context who he is. He's a New York psychologist, psychiatrist, who's working with a lot of juvenile delinquents in, you know, mental hospitals and jails. And he notices, he's pioneering these studies, and he notices two things they all have in common, these juvenile delinquents. A, they play baseball. And B, they read comic books. And he, part of this theory is that, like, you know what? Well, you know what's causing them to commit all these crimes? Comic books. Should have been baseball. He's not going to say baseball because baseball is a very fast time, right? <laughs> and he goes on this kind of this crusade against comic books, and this is kind of like uh, going on. Like everyone is taking notice and worrying about comic books all across the country, right? You know, people are like talking about banning comic books. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, like kind of like a footloose type of thing, right? Maybe even burning books. And Frederick Wortram, he's like the, like, oh, people are saying, oh, here's an academic, right? He's got these studies that are like really trying to nail comics, right? And it got to the point where the Senate is holding hearings on comic books, right? And they get the, they get, uh, the editor of EC Comics to come up and like try to defend comics. And, uh, it's, a, it's got an infamous moment. They take this infamous, co- infamous, infamous cover of crime suspense stories, right? And it's, mm-hmm. uh, you know the cover, Phil, of like... Yes, guy, the, the guy holding the, the woman's head. Yeah, and he's got an axe, a bloody axe. And mm-hmm. he goes to see uh, the publisher of Easy Comics, like, do you, think, do you think this is a good taste? And this guy, you know, he's a little... He's not used to speaking in public. He took a bunch of pills the day before <laughs> to, like, oh, be God. so nervous. And he... You know, he kind of shoots himself in the foot by saying, you know, uh, I don't consider this in poor taste at all. Maybe if that it was the angle was different and we saw blood dripping and we saw a little bit of her of her, you know, spinal cord, then that would be in poor taste. But I don't think this is in poor taste at all. And just like <laughs> you know, kind of like dug his dug the grave of comics. It's like, oh my god, man, you just made you just make us all look terrible, man. And at this point, the comics industry is in big trouble, right? There's all this national attention of, like, they're taught, and they're worried about, like, government censorship, right? And to give a little more context, this fear was very justified because this is the era of Mike McCarthy, right? Mm. People are, like, going after Hollywood actors for, for, like, 
you know supporting communism communism socialism or you know subverting american ideals right, right. So very worried that anything is going to happen to them so what they come up with is kind of a, a self-regulatory thing called the comics code a modern day equivalent would be the esrb for video games right or the uh, the mpaa for movies right is that we're going to kind of come up with our own guidelines to kind of placate people of a what is legally what can we uh what we will allow and not allow comics the content of comics that's going to be sewed on the newsstands right because mm. another, another thing important thing to consider most people know today they get their comics from the comic store and bookshops or bookstores right like what may co- comics so popular kids so they could just go down to the newsstand for like a dime and just read one so they come up with this thing called the comics code and it's a combination of them trying to get rid of the content that is so many people are objecting to. But also, the thing about EC Comics, it was outselling so many other different publishers and genres. <laughs> so this is their chance to like, put the screws to them. right? And like, we're going to make these absurd standards to try to like drive them out of business. So when you look at some of the, the stuff that's in... That they're banning, right? Uh, it, there are some things that are obvious, right? Like, you know, no gore, no sex, you know, no, no, you know, violence, right? Mm. Um, that that stuff is kind of obvious, right? You expect them to ban them, that kind of stuff in this era. And mm-hmm. to be fair, in this time period, like Easy Games was really pushing the boundary in their horror comics, right? Here's here's a panel from Easy Comics. There's a woman, a guy trying to put an ice pick to her eye. Like, by today's standards, this is pretty explicit. Yeah, that is. Right? Um, again, this is the late 40s, early 50s, right? There's a lot of, like, gay content that they're, they want to, like, weed out because very moral conservative time. Well, I'll be honest, there was a lot, there was a lot of that subtext going on, right? Here's a here's a very famous panel of, like, Bat, Bruce Wayne and, 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 and uh, Bruce Wayne and uh, Dick Grayson in bed together, you know? I want to say it's like uh, Doctor Psycho or some villain is like making the Justice League, like imagining all their loved ones in danger, and it's like the Flash, it's Iris West, right? The Adam, it's uh, what's what's her name? His, his wife, and Robin, and Batman goes, Robin, what have I done to you? <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> and and you know, it's like a joke today, like how much gay subtext there was. It's like, man, there really was a lot of gay subtext in these comics back then. Oh yeah. So. A lot of that stuff is getting weeded out in, in the comics code, but they go they go really overboard, right? I'm going to quote some of the more ridiculous guidelines. Um, the 1954 version of the comics code. Number one, crime shall never be presented in such a way as to promote sympathy for the criminal, to promote distrust of the forces of law and justice, or to inspire others with a desire to imitate criminals, right? Here's another guideline. Policemen, judges, government officials, respected institutions shall never be presented in a way to create disrespect for authority. Here's another one. In every instance, good shall triumph over evil and the criminal punished for his misdeeds. Here's kind of a, it get even more absurd, right? Like there's there's rules for how big the word, if you put crime in a title, it can only be this big. <laughs> right? And then And then we get to the stuff like the stuff that's punishing EC, right? Like, you know, no excessive gore, no excessive oral, uh, uh, horror, right? Um, 
here's what it gets to me. Inclusion of stories dealing with evil, evil shall be used in a way to present a moral issue, right? Uh, anything with vampires, cannibalism, ban. Is it, is it the most ridiculous one? Uh, excessive Whoa. use of slang and colloquialism, colloquialism. is discouraged. That is you, hilarious. Use, use good grammar, right? And why is this important, right? Why is it important? Two things. A, this code is so restrictive, it kills virtually every single genre of comics, especially the crime comics, especially the horror comics, with, ex uh, with very few exceptions, one of which is superheroes. We'll get it to that in a second. But it's like, it's so restrictive, right? It's not just like content restriction. It's like you are basically regulating morality. All your stories have to present, essentially good has to win. Right, you have to respect authority. You have to respect institutions. Right, law mm -hmm. and order. And again, this era of conservatism, uh, it makes sense why they're pushing this. And it just really kills, like the level of sophistication you can tell with storytelling. Right, comics especially. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of why, because of how heavy these restrictions are, the one genre that's able to adapt is superheroes. And this is where we kind of see kind of that popular conception of, like, Superman becomes the Boy Scout, a lot more problematic gender roles and, and institutional authority and fascism. The superheroes become more conservative, right? They become more dumbed down, more kidified, and they become, mm -hmm. like, kind of what people criticize today because of the comics code. And this is so restrictive. Right? It's just like so... You, like, how can you tell any kind of... Forget, like, telling a horror story or a war story. Like, if you can't tell a story where, like, moral ambiguity, if good always has to be respected, like, how can you have any type of, any type of sophisticated storytelling, anything of any kind of literary or creative complexity, right? And the comics... And, and again, if you ignore that, if you choose the bucket... Well, you don't get this stamp of approval of Comics Code Authority, and you don't get this put it on the newsstand, meaning your comics is not going to sell. Right, which is always crazy to really think about it because, I mean, the whole point of the, I mean, Comics Code Authority, right, is to essentially get the most popular uh, company out of business, right, which was EC at this point. Um, limiting what they, limiting the amount of things that they were able to push and publish. And this was their opportunity to become like the uh, the Motion Picture Association of America, where where they get to govern themselves. But instead, like they're they're looking for ways to 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 destroy to bring somebody else down, which in of itself brings everybody's down. And it's just you know it's the wrong way to play with your money. Exactly right, and you can see for like other comparisons, you know, people the Hayes Code, right, the of movies that predates the MPAA, like. You know, that they had a similar type of like moral guideline of content. And it really does restrict the type of stories you could tell. And people people can find ways to work around it, right? They have to, but they have to be sneaky. They have to be subversive. They have to be subtext, right? Anything overt, you couldn't do it. And this landmark comics code thing is so like I really can't overstate its importance in like really kind of stifling this this emerging medium, right? And it was just starting to really take off artistically, right? People were finding 
different types of, not just genres, but tones. And you're starting to tell, like, really progressive, radical stories. Like we just talked about with EC Comics, they had a science fiction story, you know, with the black protagonists, right, secretly. Which is major at this time. And, you know, I always think about, like, if the comics kill didn't exist, it, like, who knows what might have happened, right? This renaissance of, like, uh, the medium is flourishing right now. People are telling from all different types of backgrounds and identities and walks of life are telling different types of stories. If it wasn't for the comics code, that could have happened much sooner. Yeah. Which, which is crazy. Cause I honestly think like thinking about it too. Um, Cause when you think of American comics, you automatically think of superheroes, but like looking at the golden age and how expansive it was. Right. I think Japan also, cause this is after the war was going through something similar as well. And where, America in America, people were punished for the the for what they were putting out. Japan just actually took off, and that's why um, once manga started to come to America, that's where we see like the younger artists, like so your Gen Xers, your millennials, start to be influenced by these stories and tell stories similarly to that. So we're just you know catching up to this game. Yeah, and like like that's a really good. I'm really glad you mentioned manga. Like by comparison, look at the type of stories manga was telling like in that era and European comics in that era, like, cause they didn't have these type of restrictions and they were able to tell different types of stories much earlier on. And like that whole, that their way, their, their handle in the media just, just so drastically different, right? Mm-hmm. They have so much freedom and you can see all types of things emerge, right? Whereas because of this handicap American comics have, uh, it just, really set them back in a lot of ways. And that's where, because superheroes had to get more kid-friendly, right, it really influenced public perception of superheroes and, by extension, comics for a long time. Because for decades, and still to this day, to some extent, they think of it as just for kids. And now we're starting to come out of that. But imagine if they didn't have to fight that stigma for decades. And this is where it comes from, right? At the same time, because of the comics code, right? In order to you have these standards, and we'll get into the next the next part of this episode whenever we get to it. There's a whole underground movement. Like people mm-hmm. found ways to work around it to tell more like explicit stories and about more sophisticated stories. But that came from like the underground grassroots local level, and we have all these crazy art comics and all these crazy tradition and indie stuff, like. But that comes so it's, it's it's a really fascinating development, right? Just this one huge thing, just just really shaped comics in in the West in America for so much. And like, you know, in some ways for mainstream comics as an industry as a setback. But you also got these crazy high art stuff coming from an era of like working around these shackles. And it's mm. just like I said, like if you really want to understand like why comics are the way they are today in America and by extension of the world. Like it really pays to understand how it came from and what were the things that made it that way. And that's, you know, my condensed version of the golden age of comics. There's a lot of stuff I, I forgot to go over cause there's so much stuff to talk about. And I love talking about history, but you know, maybe we might like a bonus episode or something like that. Cause I can oh, go yeah. much deeper into like the tropes of superheroes and like, why are the, why, why was he wearing trunks and all that stuff? And <laughs> you know, there's a lot to go into. And, um, like, like if you want a really good example of what golden age comics were like star girl, 
right? Which just fit, which just fit, you know, finalize itself. This is a really good example of that. A, a book, there's a novel, The Amazing Adventures of the Cavalier and Clay. Perfect example. Captures what it was like to work in this time period perfectly, but mm. also like what were the socio political factors influencing these characters and these creators. Perfect example of, of what the Golden Age era was like. You know, and we're definitely going to do more of these. They're not going to be... It'll, it'll be some time. This is a lot of work. But yeah, next, you know, we'll be talking Silver Age, you know, underground comics. We'll be talking, you know, Bronze Age, Dark Age, alternative comics to the modern age, comics crash up to today. Um, so be on, the, be on the lookout for that down the pipeline, listeners. There you go. All right. And... That was a great lecture. We really got really got into the the meat and potatoes of like the beginning cusp of like uh, comics within America. Um, so I guess on that note, I'm Phil Fleming, and I'm Eric Wong, and we are because we're we're reversing this. We are the Peabody and Mister Peabody and Sherman. Hey, all right, okay. What question is which one of us is which? I'm clearly Sherman, so you're Mister Peabody. Uh, which one was the dog? Mr. Peabody. Okay, that's good, because I was going to say, it's probably racist if you're the dog. <laughs> but it's also racist if I'm the dog, right, being Chinese. So. That is also true. We are the one with all the knowledge, and I was asking the questions. <laughs>